Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America. This is Philip Terzian, the literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast about the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard, of which I am editor. And this week I'm talking about the books and arts section from the August 4th issue, which leads off this week with a essay by Bevis Hillier, the British author, the um, author of the three-volume Life of Sir John Betjeman, the poet. Uh, But this is an essay uh, by Bevis Hillier on Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet who was born exactly 100 years ago this year, in 1914, died on, well, over 60 years ago, at the age of 39. Um, but Bevis uh, Hillier, um, I confess, somewhat to my surprise, turns out to be a lavish admirer of Thomas, and it's an appreciation of, of Thomas's skills as a poet. Bevis gives a lot of examples of um, uh, Thomas is what we might call his Welsh wizardry with words, uh, in the sense that his his lines and phrases often sound beautiful, especially when they were read in Thomas's lilting voice, even though we may not be 100% certain what exactly they mean. And he contrasts this um, in the last third of his piece with T.S. Eliot, a much more admired poet, at least in academic circles, um, who Bevis thinks was a great critic of poetry, um, but not a natural poet uh, who used language uh, with quite the uh, diabolical skill that Dylan Thomas did. It's it's an interesting piece. I, I confess... In my own case, I am um, I'm in the Eliot camp as against the Thomas camp, but uh, Bevis's essay has prompted me to go back and uh, read some of Thomas's poetry again, which I have enjoyed doing, and I think you would you will as well. But you might want to read the piece first, which is called "The Anti Eliot: A Centenary Appraisal of Dylan Thomas." That is followed by a review by William McKenzie, um, uh, a writer who has written for me on more than a few occasions, of a new book from Oxford University Press called Families and Faith, How Religion is Passed Down Across Generations. And the thesis in a nutshell of this book, of course, is that religious faith is a, a, a great glue that holds uh, not just uh, family, but uh, families, but societies uh, together, and that when it is um, taken seriously by families and becomes a part of family ritual, not a huge part, but just an element in family ritual, it is something that gets passed down from generation to generation and brings consistency and constancy uh, um, to our lives and the lives of our society. It's an interesting book. It's a little bit of a um, sometimes social science can be the quantification of the obvious. I think we've always known that religious faith, whether you're a believer or not, yeah, and I think it's fairly clear that religious faith is a great um, uh, uh, adhesive in, in society and certainly promotes what we like to think of as um, a healthy social and family life. 
And Bill McKenzie um, sums it up all very in a very interesting fashion. That is followed by a fascinating essay by uh, my friend J.E. Lendon, who is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Uh, Ted Lendon is a classical historian, author of many um, books on uh, the classical world, and he is reviewing a new book also from Oxford Press entitled Taken at the Flood, the Roman Conquest of Greece. Um, the Sort of like the uh, the end of the Roman Empire, I guess it's always taught in school as whatever it is, 400 A.D. Um, there isn't a precise moment uh, when the Roman Empire ended. Uh, and similarly, there isn't a precise moment when uh, the, the Hellenic world was, was supplanted in terms of supremacy by the Roman world. Um, the Romans incorporated much of Greek culture into their lives, and uh, Greek culture, of course, didn't disappear with the rise of Rome. But it's an interesting essay, it's an interesting observation about how um, the Romans were, in many ways, far more uh, benevolent conquerors than we suspect, especially of the Hellenic world, incorporating a lot of um, uh, a lot of Greek elements uh, in their own system, and essentially uh, leaving the Greeks alone. Um, we tend to think of the spread of the Roman Empire as being a kind of uh, uh, sequence of military conquests followed by enslavement and oppression. Well, there was all that. There was certainly enslavement, and there was some oppression, and Lord knows there was military conquest. But it's a much bigger and more complicated story. And um, frankly, even if you don't get around to reading the book, um, Ted Lendon's, uh, J.E. Lendon's essay on a review of the book is, is, is a must-read, in my view. That is followed by a review um, by Andrew Nagorski, another uh, contributor to our pages. Andrew is a former foreign correspondent, something of an expert in, in Central and Eastern Europe, a station in his day in Berlin and Moscow. And this is a, uh, a novel by Simon Seabag Montefiore, who is a British uh, uh, historian, um, a new novel by Montefiore from Harper entitled One Night in Winter. And um, um, I, I approached it with a certain reserve because usually when historians or what have you write write novels, they they have interesting ideas. They certainly have insights into into um, the past, but it doesn't necessarily translate into good storytelling or necessarily a very uh, talented fiction writing, skilled fiction writing, but. Andrew makes the point that this is a very interesting novel. It's set in Stalinist Soviet Union and involves a, a group of children of the Soviet elite uh, in the 1930s, children of Comintern members and so on, who, who had a kind of a, a literary discussion group, which, um, as, as often happened under the circumstances, got them in trouble. And of course, when you got in trouble in Stalin's Moscow in the 1930s, it wasn't a question of um, um, 
having to go talk to the headmaster. In, in those days, detention really meant detention. They, they literally were uh, imprisoned and threatened with prosecution and um, all for a, um, a kind of slightly freewheeling uh, literary discussion group among essentially children, people in their kids, Russians in their... Um, as young as six or seven, uh, probably as old as somewhere in their mid-teens. It seems to be, in Andrew's view, a a a, a pretty good novel that that uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore has written. It certainly is an interesting novel, and Lord knows it conveys to some degree the nightmare quality of everyday life in the Soviet Union during, especially during the Stalin period. Um, and also emphasizes too that that really nobody was exempt from Stalin's terror because these are the these are the children of his colleagues um, in the Kremlin. These are not um, random people in Moscow or peasants in the Ukrainian hinterland or something. These are these are the privileged. These are the elite, uh, and even they were not exempt from um, the possibilities of. Um, Paying the ultimate price uh, just for catching Stalin's eye at some inopportune moment. My final book review is by David Aikman, and it's a it's a, a favorite theme of mine. It's a book from the University Press of Kansas, entitled "Hoover's Secret War Against Axis Spies: FBI Counterespionage During World War II." It's an interesting book. the The author is Raymond. Bet Venice, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who's a former uh, FBI agent and a specialist in counterespionage. So uh, to some degree, I suppose the book is a certain amount of special pleading, but uh, J. Edgar Hoover has not had a very friendly press in the um, 40 years or so since he died. And um, in fact, there have been some very thoughtful accounts of Hoover's career, my personal favorite being the one done in the late 80s by Richard Gid Powers, the, the City University of New York historian. But in fact, during World War II, um, Hoover uh, established a very, um, a very effective uh, counterespionage um, unit within the FBI to fight um, what we would call, I guess, access subversion in the United States. It was a lot more than we tend to know about. And of course, as is often the case with counterintelligence and counterespionage, the, the successes they enjoyed um, were um, not publicized. So we don't really know that much. And we don't really think of J. Edgar Hoover as playing much of a role in, in the struggle against the Axis powers during the Second World War. But in this, as in many other instances, Hoover, despite all his quirks and crotchets and, 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 and manifest peculiarities, was a very, very effective bureaucrat and um, in many ways a very sensible uh, man whose approach to these problems was uh, far more uh, pragmatic and effective than we tend to think. So it's the book is is an appreciation of what Hoover accomplished, but I would recommend it as much just for giving readers a little more uh, perspective on 
the, the, the career of, of really one of the more interesting as well as significant figures in American history of the 20th century. Uh, John Podhort's movie review this week is of um, a movie called Snowpiercer, which is one of those uh, dystopian uh, films where um, set in the, the, the near future, I think the the world is 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 frozen because efforts to um, fight global warming seem to have backfired, and so we live in this uh, this kind of nightmare ice land that um, uh, where people are traveling through on a fast train, and there are all sorts of metaphorical uh, levels of existence and hierarchy involved. And uh, it sounds ridiculous, as such films often are, but uh, John makes the point that as, as ridiculous as it may seem, it's actually a very well-done movie, and an old-fashioned movie in the sense that it, it has all the elements of plot, character, and and um, suspense and what have you that you that you value in a in a story told on film. So um, it prompts me uh, to take the plunge. And uh, after reading John's review, I actually would like to see Snowpiercer and plan to do so. Anyhow, that is the books and arts section for the August fourth issue. I. Hope you find it uh, rewarding and interesting reading. I have some confidence that you will. And I hope, too, that we will meet again one week from now when I will be talking about the forthcoming summer reading issue of the Weekly Standard. Thanks very much. Thank you.